From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 26th. Today, the battle over a new January 6th committee. And the firefighters at risk when wildfires burn hotter and longer. On Tuesday, we're going to have the first hearing in this select committee's investigation of the events and the causes that led to the events of January 6th. Reporter Karin Demergen is covering this House committee. It's made up of two Republicans and seven Democrats, all approved by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This committee is the latest attempt from Democrats to understand what happened during the insurrection and what led up to it. We're going to be hearing from four police officers, two from the D.C. Metropolitan Police Force and two from the Capitol Police Force, who were part of the response, who experienced various harrowing forms of verbal, physical, and other forms of abuse that day as they were trying to protect the Capitol, and whose stories are known. They have been public. They have even been advocates, some of them, for approaching an investigation of the 6th in other ways. Keep in mind, this select committee, which is made up right now of seven Democrats and two Republicans, but two Republicans who were appointed by the Democratic Speaker, is the Plan B. The initial plan was to try to put together an independent commission made up of outside experts who are not currently serving in government that would have been equally weighted between Democrats and Republicans. There was a fairly strong bipartisan endorsement of the idea of this independent commission coming from the House. It died in the Senate. And so we ended up here, which is that the House Speaker has put together this select committee to look into these matters. So I'm wondering more largely, what is this panel hoping to achieve? Like, what do we not know about January 6th that this panel is supposed to be investigating? Well, top line, everybody is saying we're going to get to the truth about what happened and what caused it. We're going to find out who was to blame. We're going to find out what the vulnerabilities were. We're going to find out what we're going to do to make ourselves safer. But when you drill down, they haven't articulated how they're going to do that yet. You have some people on the panel saying, well, look, we have to look at the vulnerabilities in the Capitol. We have to look at the security setup, what we could have done. Frankly, there are other panels around Capitol Hill that have been exploring and weighing in already on those exact same questions. Then you have people who have, you know, joined this panel. Liz Cheney made a very, very declarative statement. She is one of the two Republicans last week about how they were going to hold everybody's feet to the fire on this. And I am absolutely dedicated and committed to making sure that this investigation holds those accountable who did this and ensures that it never happens again. That is potentially a goal. There are, there are reasons to want to hear from um, allies of the former president, members of his inner circle at the White House, and even some of the Republican lawmakers on the Hill who were in touch with the former president leading up to and in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. But there's no guarantee that they are going to be able to draw them in. And right now, they are not guaranteeing that you're going to see an effort to draw in the former president, his chief of staff, people who were who would be able to tell you exactly what was going on in the Oval Office in the days leading up to this event. Hmm. And as you mentioned, there has been 
a controversy over who is going to be on this panel and whether Republicans will be evenly represented. And it sounds like that's not going to be the case. Can you talk through what the implications are for who actually gets to be on this panel? So Plan B, the select committee, was designed by Democrats to have eight appointees exclusively by the Democratic speaker and five appointees that could be recommended by the Republican leader, but would be appointed in consultation with the speaker, which is, you know, gobbledygook for she had veto power over Hmm. the people that the Republican leaders wanted to put on. And she used it for the two that she and other Democrats are saying, look, these people, Jim Jordan, who's one of the now more well-known Republicans after both of the impeachment experiences with uh, former President Trump, had met with the president in the days before. Maybe he's a witness. Um, Jim Banks, who's the person that they had recommended as to be the top Republican, the ranking Republican for the select committee, had made fairly incendiary statements about the work of the select committee and how he thought that it was going to basically just be an apologist organization for Democrats that was going to try to go after and pillory Trump unnecessarily. So, And what did Pelosi say about why she wasn't going to let either of those members of the House be on the, on the committee? So she said it was their statements. So as the... Uh, Legislation allows. I did not accept two of the five people were appointed. Uh, They have made statements and taken actions uh, that I think would impact the integrity of the committee, the work of the committee. Of the five, there were others who had taken votes against certifying the election, against the independent commission, against the existence of the special committee. But her decision was not based on you have to be in lockstep with us, but you have to not be either somebody who may have participated in the siege of the Capitol or setting it up or somebody who's trying to kind of smear the truth of that and keep it keep that alive. The response from the GOP was you can't cherry pick our members. Hmm. These are people who are elected members of Congress and respected. And, you know, you're going to take everybody or you're going to we're going to walk. And so she said no. And they said, well, then we're going to walk and we're going to do our own counter investigation that the Republicans have not defined what that's going to be yet. Pelosi has created a sham process. Unless Speaker Pelosi reverses course and seats all five Republicans, we will not participate. No committee in Congress will work if one person is picking all who can serve. That just tells you what we're in for for the next several months. As this committee goes forward, it's going to be political mud throwing. So who are the two Republicans who ended up on this panel? So the two Republicans who ended up on this panel are Liz Cheney of Wyoming, whose last name you may recognize because the former vice president was her father, but also because she is was one of the top-ranking Republicans in the House, um, and Adam Kinzinger, uh, who is a Republican from Illinois. Both of these individuals are fairly conservative Republicans. They're not exactly lifelong moderates, but... Frankly, even before January 6th, they took a stand against all the disinformation that Trump was putting out there, trying to sow doubts about the integrity of the 2020 election. And after the 6th, they really were very vocal about how wrong this was. And Cheney, in particular, lost her leadership seat uh, in the House GOP because she was vocal about how wrong this was and refused to kind of bend. 
And I can imagine that the goal of a committee like this at the beginning is to be apolitical, to be seen as nonpartisan. I mean, has any chance of that essentially gone out the window, that this is going to be viewed as a political entity that has political purposes and continuing to make Republicans and the former president look bad? I mean, I think that people that support the work of the committee will say it's a nonpartisan committee and it is bipartisan. So the hearings will probably be pretty normal. I mean, we're used to seeing these really ugly, really angry hearings that descend into just a total melee. We're not going to see that. The, the, the hearings will be very, very polite and well-conducted and solemn and serious. And outside, there will be a total rainstorm of political mess happening all the time. I think that it is notable that this committee is starting with the testimony of four police officers who were at the Capitol, who I'm sure saw pretty harrowing things. I wonder, like, in the minds of the people who are a part of this committee, how do they do right by those people, the people who put their lives on the line to defend the Capitol? Yeah, I mean, look, these these officers and the officers that they represent um, behind them have been described by members of the panel as the moral center of all of this. You know, that they were risking their lives to protect the lives of people in the Capitol. They didn't ask for this. This is a tired metaphor, but, you know, people talk about how, you know, if you're going to make a case and then the case is like a five-course dinner or something, you have to make sure that you're making it on really nice tablecloth and china and silverware and everything like that. And I, I don't mean to be trite about it, but I think that that is... The retelling of the day through the eyes of these police officers is that sort of not first course, but like pre-first course setup of the mindset they want everybody to be in when they walk into the room and say, OK, now I'm going to listen to the the meat of this. I'm also curious about what the stated result of this committee is supposed to be. Are they hoping to come out with some kind of huge report that details moment by moment everything that was happening inside the Capitol? Or what is the end result supposed to look like? I think we're all expecting a report. Um, I think we're expecting a report that is more comprehensive than the other reports we have seen thus far. And there are other committees around the Hill that have put together reports about what happened on the 6th. But again, they haven't committed to a timeline. They haven't committed to an endgame. They haven't committed to exactly what it is that we're going to see or who they're going to interview along the way. And look, part of that is necessary. If you had all of the people on the probe coming out with guns blazing, saying we're going to do all these things, that would probably fuel the counter accusations from the GOP that, well, they just have an agenda here. They're not actually going to conduct a legitimate measured investigation. But, but, you know, we're all out here having watched January 6th, having watched the four years of the Trump administration, kind of knowing parts of this story already and wondering what gaps are they going to fill in? And they have not said that yet. And that is something that probably is, you know, a vagueness that doesn't help the the case of saying mm. this committee is going to do something that people have never seen before. Because I think that that is a question that a lot of people have. I mean, we went through a whole impeachment where many of these questions were asked. There are more than 500 criminal cases against people who were at the Capitol. As you mentioned, other House committees have been investigating various parts of what was happening with security, what was happening with the building. I mean, look, you've tapped into something that is exactly the kind of shrug moment, right? Like, because what else is there to say? Well, there is a lot to say, right? We still have questions about what was happening at the Pentagon. We have questions about exactly what was going on in the White House. There are still missing links and moving parts that go 
close to the president or right to the president that we don't know about, right? That was all really relevant stuff in the impeachment that they didn't get to. So are those the questions that are still left unanswered? Yes. Can they answer them? (laughs) Big question mark, right? Because there's probably going to be resistance. Karin Demergen covers national security on Capitol Hill for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This year, California, Oregon, and Washington State are facing an extreme wildfire season. As of this evening, the Dixie Fire is currently at 181,289 acres of involvement with 20% containment. In Butte County in Northern California, the Dixie Fire has grown to nearly 200,000 acres. There are more than 5,000 firefighters out there trying to put out the flames. And fires like this one are becoming the norm. And all of that is taking a huge toll on the people that we rely on to fight them. Sarah Kaplan covers climate for The Post. I spent the past couple of weeks talking to Forest Service firefighters and other folks about, you know, just what it means to have a fire season that basically never ends, to have fires that are so hot and so extreme that they exhibit all of these really wild and unpredictable behaviors. It's really traumatizing and it's really exhausting and federal firefighters are just completely burnt out. So how is climate change affecting the intensity and and number of fires that we're seeing in the West? I mean, the West has always burned. These are fire-evolved or fire-adapted landscapes. But climate change is definitely making the frequency of extreme fire and the severity of those fires way worse. There's research that shows that the acreage of land burned by a catastrophic fire in the West is double what it would have been since the mid-1980s without climate change. You know, we call them megafires. Now they're called gigafires if they're, you know, over a million acres. I spoke with Kelly Martin, who is a veteran Forest Service firefighter who retired last year um, after more than 30 years of the agency and now runs an organization called Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. And she said that the situation now is so different from when she first started in the business because climate change has made fires so severe. It's significantly different. These fires now are becoming progressively bigger, larger, and more dangerous than when I started. And You know, climate change is making the West hotter. It has raised temperatures, especially during the summer. It is also making the West drier. So that means that 
the wood and the debris and the vegetation in these landscapes is more easily burned and more easily burned earlier in the summer and also later in the fall because there's a delay in the arrival of, of winter rains and snow. And so all of that adds up to a fire season that is really long, fires that burn really hot, hot enough to have incredibly wild and 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 almost like science fiction-y behaviors like fire tornadoes and pyrocumulonimbus clouds that have lightning and it's just incredibly dangerous to live with and to attempt to fight. And what has that meant for firefighters? Like what did they tell you about the experiences that they've had that have led to the kind of burnout that you're describing? So the sort of traditional setup of the federal firefighting workforce is that many firefighters are seasonal. So they get hired at the start of fire season and they're temporary workers. And they tend to work really long days. Usually you spend two weeks on the fire line and then you get two days off. And during those two weeks, basically you're working all the time. Some of the best time to fight fires is at night because temperatures tend to cool off a little bit and humidity tends to increase, which depresses fire behavior and makes it a little bit safer to fight. And so you're, you know, you're working all day, cutting fire lines and then working through the night, trying to defend houses. You'll find yourself in really scary situations with increasing frequency. I've talked to firefighters who have been up these narrow dirt roads in you know, Western mountain communities when a fire comes down and it's really dangerous and scary to try to get out of the way of it or fighting a fire, trying to protect a house when the house kind of goes up in flames because a ember lands on the roof. And then you add on top of that, the fact that like fire season basically never ends now. I mean, in January in California, people had to be evacuated from a community when a fire that had been burning since the previous August kind of blew up again under high winds and high temperatures. And so that, I mean, basically you're working more than a thousand hours of overtime and it's exhausting. You don't see your family, you don't see your friends, you don't get a break and people are burning out. And are these jobs well-paid or paid the way that they probably should be? These jobs are not well paid. Um, the starting salary for a U.S. Forest Service firefighter is about $13.45 an hour. And so if you look at a place, like if you're fighting fires in California where the minimum wage is $15 an hour, you could literally make more pay as a cashier at a fast food restaurant and not doing this work where you're risking your life on a regular basis. And for that reason, the Forest Service is really struggling to recruit and retain firefighters. I had a young firefighter, recently married, had a new baby. The pay did not compensate him enough to actually move into a house that had a bathtub for bathing their newborn or their, their toddler. And so what he had to resort to is staying in a cheaper house and him and his wife having to bathe their child in the sink, in the kitchen sink. And so he eventually left for a better paying job. So these are the kinds of stories that, that you hear about that as much as they love, you know, working for the National Park Service or the U.S. Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management or Fish and Wildlife, people have to make some family choices. 
the Forest Service wouldn't tell me how many firefighting positions are open across the agency, but I've talked with firefighters and with representatives of the union that represents firefighters that said that there are places where crews won't be able to be fully staffed because it's just been so hard to recruit firefighters. And I've talked to people who fight fires who say this is their last year because they can't keep doing it anymore. The cumulative trauma and the fatigue of um, watching your colleagues get hurt or injured or killed uh, in the line of duty, that really takes a toll on, on mental health. And being in a very extreme situation where there's extreme risk with extreme consequences and and being able to do that year after year is taking a toll. So then what is the answer to that? Like, what could the future look like in a world where we have firefighting capabilities that that match or at least attempt to match the scope of the fires that we're going to be seeing? So President Biden, a couple of weeks ago, announced some initiatives to try to address these challenges. Last week, I learned that some of our federal firefighters are being paid less than $13 an hour. Come on, man. This is that's unacceptable to me. This year, the Forest Service is going to give bonuses to firefighters so that nobody is making less than $15 an hour. And he's also going to try to change the structure of federal firefighting workforce so that it's more full-time employees with full-time benefits and also more opportunities to do preventive work in the off-season when fires are not so extreme. And that's the other piece of the equation is that it's not just the the fires that have gotten so bad and the number of fires that become really extreme and catastrophic and sort of beyond the scale of human control has increased to a degree that like there are other things that scientists and experts say need to be done to address the fire issue. And so it's not just fighting fires, but also managing the landscape so that it doesn't burn as catastrophically and also managing communities so that they are less vulnerable to fire. Some of the most cost-effective things that can be done are just changing the materials that homes are built out of, changing the vegetation in the immediate vicinity of a home so that when a fire comes close, because these landscapes will burn, they are evolved to burn, but house doesn't have to burn. You could build a house to be safer. Firefighting means everything from preparing communities and preparing landscapes before the fires actually get started to then trying to fight back a blaze once it actually gets going. And in order to have a firefighting approach like that, you need to have a professional year-round workforce that is well-paid, that is well-trained, that understands ecology, that understands the science of fire behavior, and they need to be supported, right? They need to have like adequate time off, they need to have adequate mental health support and physical health support. I mean, it's just an incredibly demanding job. And if you want to get the best trained people with the most expertise, like you need to provide them with the support and resources they need to keep doing it year after year um, so that you can hold on to that institutional knowledge. And that also so that they can apply their expertise, not just to, you know, the in the moment in the middle of August trying to put out a fire, but also thinking about, well, how do we make a country that is evolved to burn safer? And how do we make communities 
that have to live with that reality safer. Sarah Kaplan covers climate for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. Last week, we aired a two-part story that we've been working on for over a year. It was about a woman named Nancy and her immigration journey from El Salvador to the U.S.-Mexico border. It's called Marooned in Matamoros. If you haven't already listened, you should definitely go back and do that. You can find it at wapo.st slash nancy or in our episode archive. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.